Oh, amen. What a joy to stand right over there and hear your voices lifted up. I believe the Holy Spirit is moving among us this morning, blessing our fellowship, as the old hymn says, tuning our hearts to sing His praise. And now I very much pray opening our minds and opening our hearts to understand His Word. If you've been a believer for any period of time, I'm sure that you have heard the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob, who was uh, sold by his brothers into slavery, and then who was unjustly accused of a crime and thrown in prison. He languished there for years, possibly up to 12 years unjustly in prison but then brought out of prison and raised up to second in command over all of ancient Egypt and used by God in a time of great famine to save the known world and in particular to save the people of Israel. When his brothers realized who he was, they were terrified. They said, oh, please forgive us. And he said, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that's a spiritual principle that we find throughout the Scriptures. It's something that we believe. It's something that's hard to swallow sometimes. And we ask ourselves the question, how is this going to work out? Uh, But Paul, for example, when he is in prison, says the same thing. I know that this is going to turn out for your good Uh, And of course, in that very famous passage in Romans chapter 8, in which Paul is talking about the trials and the struggles that we experience in this life and even in our own bodies, he says that God uses these things for our good, and then he actually tells us what that good is, and that is that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and made more uh, like Christ. In other words, working for our sanctification. So God takes losses and turns them into gains. And this is something in the upper room, if you'll turn to John chapter 16, that Jesus tells the disciples that they are going to experience. He has been revealing to them the devastating news that He was leaving them. Now, before Jesus came into their lives, they were pretty much nothing by the world's standards or even by the kingdom of God's standards. Jesus came into their lives, brought them new life, brought them meaning, and they had high hopes for everything that was to come. He was going to lead them into establishing the kingdom of God here on earth and bringing triumph over their enemies and all this kind of great stuff. And now he says, I'm leaving. And so their arithmetic in their minds is pretty simple. Disciples minus Jesus is loss. Loss of dreams, loss of hope hopes, loss of everything that they anticipated. But Jesus has a different formula in mind for them. This is what he says, John chapter 16, starting in verse 7. 
Very truly I tell you, it is good, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Jesus says, you're feeling loss. But if you take the formula and make it disciples minus Jesus plus Holy Spirit, it's a gain. It is even better for you. The word that he uses is talking about profitability in one sense. You are going to profit at the end of this transaction because instead of me, you receive the Holy Spirit. The word also has implications about what is fitting, about what is right. It's not a loss. This is the right thing. It is the best thing. It is the perfect outcome in these circumstances that I, Jesus, am taken from you, disciples, and that in my place I send the Holy Spirit. And in the next few verses, he outlines how that is. First of all, in what we've read and what we're going to talk about today, how that's true of the world. But then, in the following verses, and for next week, how that is true specifically in the life of the believer. It's important to understand that when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit here, he uses a word that is kind of interesting, maybe a little bit odd, difficult to understand for us. He says that the Holy Spirit is an advocate. Unless I go, the advocate will not come to you. It's a difficult word to translate. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with the term paraclete. When a translator really can't figure out how to translate it, they just take the Greek and put it into English, and that's what paraclete is. And John refers to the Holy Spirit as the paraclete. And what that means is simply someone who comes along beside you, someone who joins with you in whatever circumstances you are. So in some translations, you hear about the comforter, if someone comes alongside you in a time of grief and connects with you where you are, they're a comforter for you. If someone comes alongside you in a time of confusion, they are a counselor. If someone comes alongside in a time of need, they are a helper. If someone comes alongside in a time when you need direction, they are a guide. And these are all names that are given to the Holy Spirit because that is the ministry that He has alongside us. Whatever the circumstance is, coming alongside where we are. Now, this word actually is only used five times, all by uh, John, four times in the gospel and one time in 1 John. And in two of those cases, John is throwing around terms that have a legal implication. He's talking about accusation or about judgment. 
And so the translators have chosen most often the term advocate. If you are standing under accusation and are in danger of being judged, who comes alongside you? An advocate. Someone who stands on your behalf. So the Holy Spirit is an advocate, not only for the believer, but very interestingly, the Holy Spirit is an advocate for those who do not yet believe in Christ. And Jesus says that for that individual, the Holy Spirit, the advocate, comes alongside, and then what does he do? He convicts. Now, that's an odd activity for your defense attorney, isn't it? Come alongside and tell you the things that you've done that are wrong. The translation that we have in the NIV is very good here. To prove the world to be wrong or to show the world to be wrong. The problem is that when we hear the word convict, we most often think of a bad feeling. I did something wrong. I was unkind to somebody, or maybe I took something that I shouldn't have taken, or I told a lie, and I start to feel badly about that. And I say, oh, the Holy Spirit's convicting me because I feel badly about this thing that I did. But the word is stronger than that. It's not just a bad feeling that we have. It really is this idea of convicting in a legal sense, of proving to be guilty or of proving to be wrong, of exposing. That's how this word is used in John 3.20 when it says that the light exposes the evilness of our deeds. The Holy Spirit is an advocate who convicts. He is an attorney who comes alongside, but what he whispers are words of personal appeal. Don't you see how it is that you are wrong? Can I show you the way that is right? Jesus says, if I go then this kind of advocate is going to come and carry on a ministry in this world. And that ministry has to do with three different things that he is going to show those who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ. The first one has to do with sin. He will prove the world to be wrong in regard to sin. The word sin has several different meanings throughout Scripture. First thing our minds go to, of course, is the areas in which we are actually uh, breakers of God's command. God gave the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. Do not covet. Do not steal. If I murder or if I covet or if I steal or if I break any of the other commandments, I'm a lawbreaker. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. That's that kind of conviction that we're used to thinking about. I did something wrong and I'm made to feel guilty about it. This is a true biblical sense of sin, breaking God's commands. Another biblical sense of sin is falling short of fulfilling complete righteousness. God has revealed in his word all of the things that we ought to do, 
the way that we ought to love people perfectly, the way that we ought to love mercy and work justice in the world, the way that we ought to serve others wholeheartedly. He's, he's told us all kinds of what it means, all kinds of things of what it means to be righteous. And whenever we fall short of that, whenever we miss it, we, we tried, but we didn't quite get it right. <laughs> That's sin. There's a third sense in which sin is used in Scripture, and that has more to do with a state of being than actual actions in which we violate God's law or in which we fall short of God's law. And that is what John is talking about most often when he speaks of sin, and that is what he's talking about here. You can tell because you have the singular sin not the plural, sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's talking about the sinful state in which we dwell and in which our hearts and minds uh, live day in and day out. A state of rebellion against God, a state in which we exalt ourselves as the primary uh, source of morality, of, uh, of righteousness, of whatever it is that we imagine that's going to get us by in life. Jesus talks about being a slave to sin. That is, in which we live in this realm, in which we live in this state of sinfulness. We read about somebody who's steeped in sin. You get the idea. It's, it surrounds us. It's all around us. It permeates to our very inner being. And Jesus says that we are indeed guilty of sin, not sins. Yes, we are definitely guilty of sins, but we are guilty simply of living in this state of sin. And the Holy Spirit comes to convict to prove us wrong in our thinking about sin. What is it that he's proving wrong here? Well, let's look at verse 9 again. The Holy Spirit comes to prove us wrong about sin because people do not believe in me. When Jesus gets down to the root of the matter, the problem with sin is not, is this right or wrong, and did I do it or did I not do it? When you get down to the root of the matter, the problem is, do I believe in Jesus such that he has moved me from the state of sin to the state of light and life as one of his children? He'll convict of sin because they have not believed in me. Jesus told his opposers in John chapter 8, you will die in your sin because you do not believe in me. That's the real problem. John chapter 3 is a remarkably parallel passage for what we've read this morning. Uh, we talked about the idea of 
of truth being exposed. Well, in John 3.20, Jesus talks about the light exposing the true nature of our evil deeds. As we read through John 3.16 through 18, you'll see several words that we already read in John 16. But let's see here what he has to say about sin and also about judgment. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn. That is, by the way, the same word as judgment. He didn't send his Son into the world to pronounce judgment on the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him, that's the Son of God, is not condemned, is not judged, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men, people loved darkness instead of light because their e deeds were evil. Jesus narrows in... Uh, or, narrows down and focuses in on the root problem when he says this is the judgment. Men love darkness, people love darkness more than light. This is the root of condemnation that people have not believed in God's Son and so have not been delivered from that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. There's this internal resistance to Jesus' message. There's this desire to somehow be self-sufficient. I know I can be good enough. I really don't need somebody else to help me out of this situation. In the end, I think it's going to work out and I'm going to be okay. And Jesus says the root issue is, who do you believe? Who do you trust? And when he's talking about faith, he's not talking about something that we just kind of know and agree with. I read one illustration about the difference between a, a person who's standing on a dock looking at a boat and saying, that looks like a sound, seaworthy boat. I think that, that I can take a ride in it. And somebody who is out at sea, out of their depth, running out of energy, at their last breath, desperately longing for a boat that they can climb into and be saved. That's how a sinner needs to look at Jesus, the one that I can trust to save me, the one that I can throw the full weight of my eternal soul upon and know that I am rescued. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit's ministry among us to show us what's right and what's true about faith in Jesus. The second thing that the Holy Spirit shows us or convinces us in regard to is righteousness. This is a puzzle too. It's a puzzle, first of all, because John doesn't use the word righteousness elsewhere. He doesn't really lay out for us what he specifically means by righteousness. But we know from Scripture in general that to be righteous means to have a right standing before God. 
It means to have avoided the things we're supposed to avoid and to have fulfilled all of the things that we are supposed to fulfill. That's righteousness, and the Holy Spirit convicts us about righteousness. But another real puzzle in here is how Jesus connects the thoughts in verse 10. Let's look at it again. John 16, 10, the Holy Spirit will convict about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can no longer see me. What's the logical connection there? How do you get from conviction about righteousness to the fact that Jesus is going to the Father and we will no longer see him? I was confused about this for a while, spent some time in prayer, spent some time in study, read the commentators, and I think it's really helpful if we understand that all throughout John chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, when Jesus talks about going to the Father where we can't follow him, or when he talks about going to the Father and we will no longer see him, he is referring to the whole event of the cross, of his death and his resurrection and his ascension to the Father. So Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is going to convict about righteousness in light of this whole cross event that is going to take place. What's going on here? Throughout the entire book of John, there has been a tension. There has been a battle. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the priests, the rulers of the people, they all have one idea of righteousness. Their idea of righteousness, first of all, has to do with themselves, that they are righteous. And the reason that they're righteous is because they follow the law of Moses, because they follow the traditions, they do all the things they're supposed to do, and they believe all the things that they are supposed to believe. Jesus, on the other hand, calls out their hypocrisy, calls out their self-righteousness, and says that they are children of the devil, that if they really want to be righteous, they need to listen to him, they need to follow him, and they need to believe him. And this conflict goes throughout the whole book. And who's right? How do we know who is right? Who has the right standing before the Father? We know because of the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. If he was left in the grave, he was wrong. And his opposers are proved right in all the things that they were saying. But the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is shown to be right once for all. There's no doubt about it. The things that Jesus says are true because Jesus died and rose again and has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit convicts of righteousness because Jesus is shown once for all. He's demonstrated for all of eternity to be the righteous one from God. And conversely, he proves for all time the insufficiency of self-righteousness or of any human way that has been established to try and please God and to reach the Father 
His resurrection not only points out his rightness, but points out every single lie. When Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, he was exclusively claiming that following him is the way to the Father and every other way is a lie. And if Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, then he's right. There's no other way that we can be declared righteous before God except believing in Jesus and following him. Jesus is righteous and I can never be. And so I so desperately need for his righteousness to become mine. That is the basic transaction that takes place on the cross. Jesus Christ went to the cross and took upon himself the full weight of our sin. We know this, we talk about it. He died on the cross in my place. He bore the punishment for my sin. The full wrath of God that should have been poured out on me was poured out on him. That's one part of the exchange. The other great and glorious part of that exchange is that he not only says, I'll take your sin, he says, take my righteousness. He fulfilled the whole law. He did everything that was necessary. And he says to every single human being, here it is. Here's my righteousness. Clothe yourself in it. Be holy before the Father, not because of anything that you have done, but because I, Jesus, have done everything on your behalf. And here's where the courtroom that we are standing in, I can't believe the time. Here's where the courtroom that we are standing in is so different from the courtroom of the world. The courtroom of the world goes right from the conviction to the condemnation. The courtroom of the cross goes from the conviction to the provision of salvation. And so, like a starving person who finally realizes they need to be fed With the desperation of someone who is about to die, we claim the fullness of the righteousness of Jesus Christ for our own. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in regard to righteousness. And then the work of the Holy Spirit in regard to judgment to come. And the word to hear is inevitability. It's going to happen. Author of Hebrews says, we have an appointment. There's an appointment for every single person once to die and then comes judgment. It's really interesting to study Jesus as the judge in the Gospel of John. We already touched on it a little bit in John chapter 3 when he said he did not come into the world to judge. He didn't come to pronounce judgment on the world. He came to save the world. But in that same passage, he says judgment is real. This is the judgment. Lights come into the world, that's Jesus, but men, people loved darkness more than light because their deeds were evil. 
So at the same time as himself putting off judgment, he makes it very clear that there is judgment to come. In John chapter 5, he makes it even more clear. He says the Father has handed all judgment over to him, that he, Jesus, is the one who will judge, that the day is coming, sounds just like the book of Hebrews, the day is coming when everyone is going to rise and be judged, and some will pass into life, and others will pass into condemnation. Jesus holds no words back when it comes to judgment. We don't really like that. It's one of those areas where people want to say, well, that's not my Jesus. My Jesus talks about love. Can you believe this? In the book of John, Jesus talks about God's love for the world once. John 3.16. Jesus talks about judgment 24 times. Now, it's actually in like five or six conversations, but over and over, he talks about judging, he talks about judgment, he warns us that it is coming. Now, this is not to say that Jesus was all about condemnation. He himself said, I came to save. He loves enough that he took that sin on himself. He died in our place. He took all the condemnation for us. But that doesn't mean we can't talk about it. Because judgment is inevitable. In John 12, Jesus talks about judgment and he uses the present tense. Now, judgment has come. What happens in John 12? Jesus enters Jerusalem and we have the start of the week in which he is going to die and rise again and then later be taken to the Father. And he says, the prince of the world is driven out. Judgment has now come and the prince of the world is driven out. At the cross, Satan was defeated. At the cross, Satan was condemned. But the problem is that Satan's condemnation is something that anyone who associates themselves with him will bear upon themselves as well. I didn't say that well. The same fate, this is a quote from one thing I read, the same fate awaits those who side with him against the Savior. Jesus said it over and over again through the Gospel of John. Rejecting Jesus is rejecting God. Hating Jesus is hating God. Loving Jesus is loving God. Following Jesus is following God. Which kingdom are you going to be found in when the day of judgment comes? The kingdom of sin and darkness and a prince of this world who has been condemned or the kingdom of light and of life. We want to pretend that this isn't real to procrastinate, to put off the decision, to say, I'll think about that tomorrow, to get caught up in today's affairs and day after day and week after week and month after month, year after year, avoid thinking about judgment to come. We hope that we might skate by and then when somebody dies, we're like, oh, they were such a good person, now they're in a better place. And I pray that that is true. But it is only true 
if that person has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. And so we've seen here that the resurrection of Christ is the defining moment in salvation history and in human history and in personal history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the defining moment. It is either victory for those who believe or judgment for those who have rejected It exposes every lie, every false way, every false assurance, every bit of self-righteousness, every method of trying to attain righteousness by our own effort that is proclaimed throughout this world. And it focuses us on belief. What are you going to do with that Savior? And we must cling to Him with the desperation of a condemned criminal on the day of execution because he's the one who can provide the way out. And so a first call this morning has to do with the courtroom of our own heart. In a conventional courtroom, a prosecutor proves his case and we are guilty. And the judge pronounces his condemnation and the bailiff takes us away. But the courtroom of Jesus Christ in our heart is so very different. In this courtroom, the attorney comes alongside and says, don't you see? Don't you see what you've been rejecting? Don't you see what you need? Won't you choose the Savior? In this courtroom, the judge comes out from behind the platform and says, I will take the penalty. I'll pay the debt. I'll go to the cross for the sake of that person whom I love so dearly. In this courtroom, the bailiff comes alongside and doesn't lead us off into condemnation. Instead, he says, I'll show you the way to life. If only you will believe in Jesus Christ. And oh, my friend, if you have not fallen on Jesus with the desperation of a drowning man or a starving woman or a condemned prisoner today, is the day to do that. People ask, why don't we have an altar call? Life is an altar call. But there are always people up here who are ready to pray with you if you would like to pray. But the real thing to do is if you haven't given your heart to Jesus Christ, skip lunch, go home, get on your knees, and don't stand up until the Holy Spirit has dealt with you. There's a word here for believers as well. It's oh so important. The Holy Spirit doesn't do this directly. Jesus said to the disciples, it is better for you that I am going because when I go, the Holy Spirit will come and he comes to us. 
He comes to us who have believed in Jesus Christ, and he carries on his ministry through us. What happened on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, and they went out proclaiming the truth about Jesus. And Peter stood up before the very people who had crucified Jesus and said, you rejected the author of life. You put him to death, but God raised him to dead and they, from the dead. And they were cut to the heart. What must we do to be saved? The Holy Spirit worked through the testimony of the disciples upon whom he had come on that day of Pentecost. And that Holy Spirit has come upon us and wants to work through us in bringing this loving, gentle, convincing paraclete alongside message of salvation to everyone who doesn't believe. We love the idea, prove to be wrong, right? I'm going to go out on Facebook and prove somebody to be wrong today. <laughs> Good luck with that. The Holy Spirit comes alongside. Let's follow that way. Danny, thank you for our new song. The very last words in my notes are, follow Jesus' way. Jesus who said, I didn't come to condemn, I came to save. Jesus who knew that condemnation was coming, but now's not the moment for it. Now's the moment to come aside in gentleness, in love, in compassion, and in truth, talking about who Jesus is and why he came and how very desperately we need him and praying that the Holy Spirit will do the work that only he can do. Let's pray together. Oh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would carry out this ministry among us we have just bumped our heads up against the wall over and over again trying to convince somebody of something. You are the one who opens hearts and who opens minds and who convinces of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. I pray that you would work us among us this morning to show us that we are sinners and need a Savior, to show us that we are unrighteous and need the righteousness of Christ, and to urge anyone, Holy Spirit, who has not yet believed to make today their day of salvation. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work among us and through us to our friends, to our loved ones, to family members and co-workers. And we've talked about Muslim people around the world and the billions who don't yet have Jesus Christ. It's an overwhelming task. It can never be accomplished by any one of us. But Jesus, you promised that we, your church, would do greater things because of the Spirit's work through us. So we pray and we ask that you would take hold of us as your messengers and help us to follow Jesus' way 
and then do your powerful work through us. In Jesus' name, amen.